Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, child murderer, Mary Bell. But first, your true crime headlines. Maintaining his innocence till the end, Larry Swearingen was executed last week by the state of Texas. Swearingen was convicted of the rape and murder of 19-year-old Melissa Trotter, a college student who went missing in December of 1998. Her body was found nearly a month later in a wooded area about 30 miles north of where she was last seen. Swearingen has proclaimed his innocence for two decades and his execution had been stayed on five previous occasions. In a final statement released before his execution, he referred to himself as a sacrificial lamb, and his last words were, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Kelly Blackburn, who prosecuted the case, said that he had absolutely zero doubt that anyone other than Larry Swearingen committed the crime. Swearingen was the fourth condemned prisoner to be executed this year in the state of Texas, which has carried out more executions than any other state since the Supreme Court reinstated capital punishment in 1976. An Ohio cheerleader will face trial in September on charges that she murdered her newborn baby daughter. Prosecutors allege that Brooke Schuyler Richardson known as Skyler to her family and friends, secretly gave birth to a baby girl just days after her senior prom, and then bashed the baby's skull in and tried to light it on fire before burying it in the backyard of her family's home. Richardson claims that the baby, who she named Annabelle, was stillborn. Police learned of Richardson's pregnancy from a doctor that she had visited a few weeks before she gave birth. He called in a tip to police, who searched the family's property and found the baby's decomposing remains buried in the backyard. Richardson is facing charges of aggravated murder, involuntary manslaughter, abuse of a corpse, and tampering with evidence. Her attorneys requested a change of venue, arguing that the young woman would not be able to find an impartial jury after all of the publicity surrounding her case. The request was denied, and her trial is set to begin on September 3rd. A mistrial has been declared in the trial of Joseph Oberhansley, who is accused of the 2014 murder of his ex-girlfriend Tammy Jo Blanton. In his opening statements, prosecutor Jeremy Mull told jurors that Blanton and Oberhansley had dated and briefly lived together before she broke off their relationship and changed the locks on her home. Fearful of Oberhansley, Blanton had been staying with friends and relatives in the week leading up to her murder. The day before she was murdered, Blanton told friends that she was taking her life back and she moved back into her home. Just one day later, Oberhansley showed up on her doorstep. She tried to lock herself in the bathroom, but Oberhansley broke down the door and stabbed Blanton to death. He then ate parts of her heart, brain, and lung. Oberhansley's mental competency has been a factor in delaying the trial, with three experts declaring him incompetent to stand trial in 2017. 
after a year of psychiatric treatment, he was deemed competent. And in April of this year, prosecutors agreed to take the death penalty off the table if Oberhansley's attorneys agreed not to pursue an insanity defense. The mistrial was declared after a witness mentioned Oberhansley's previous drug use and prison time after the judge had declared that information to be inadmissible at trial. A new court date has been set for September 3rd, and Mull told reporters that while the mistrial is an unfortunate setback, he hopes to have a verdict in the case by late September. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Mary Bell. But first, a quick break. Are you looking for affordable counseling, but having trouble fitting it into your budget or busy work schedule? It's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a convenient, safe, and private online environment and get better help at your own time and your own pace. With better help, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor, you're free to request a new one at any time. This really is better help. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MurderMinute and get 10% of your first month with discount code MurderMinute. Get started today. Go to BetterHelp.com slash MurderMinute, fill out the questionnaire, and BetterHelp will match you with a counselor that you'll love. Get BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash MurderMinute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the tragic story of Mary Bell. In 1968, the slum district in Newcastle called Scottswood had changed little since the Second World War. Years of neglect had caused the poverty-stricken neighborhood to develop a reputation with police for petty theft, prostitution, drugs, alcoholism, and domestic violence. To make matters worse for the residents in the downtrodden neighborhood, the city of Newcastle had decided to begin demolishing the derelict homes in Scottswood, make room for new high-rise apartments. For the residents of Scottswood, this progress created an atmosphere that resembled a bombed-out war zone. The children of Scottswood roamed the streets, often playing unsupervised in an area known as Rat Alley. Construction sites and derelict abandoned homes scheduled for demolition were playgrounds for the free-range children of Scottswood. But while many neighbors in the district looked after one another, and generally kept an eye on each other's children. There was one little girl in Scottswood 
who someone really should have been watching. 11-year-old Mary Bell. Mary's mother, Betty, was a prostitute, and she often left Mary alone for days or weeks at a time while she worked out of town. Depressive and unstable, Betty had given birth to Mary when she was just 17, and according to family members, had tried to kill Mary multiple times as a toddler, attempting to make it look like an accident. Once, Mary mysteriously fell out of a window. Another time, Betty was seen feeding Mary sleeping pills as treats. Betty also attempted to give Mary up for adoption, but strangely, when family members offered to take Mary, Betty refused. As a prostitute, Betty specialized in sadomasochism and often serviced clients right in front of Mary. From the age of four, Betty began to prostitute Mary, forcing her to engage in sexual acts with men. Mary's father, Billy Bell, was a petty criminal and an alcoholic. Mary Bell was immersed in a loveless world of violence, crime, abuse, and abandonment. But while Mary Bell was neglected by the adults in her life, she had not gone unnoticed by the children of Scotswood. The first thing you noticed about Mary was her eyes, recalled one former classmate. She's got very distinctive blue eyes. Very attractive blue eyes, I suppose. But they are very distinctive, and they can fix you and stay. She could be sort of fine one minute doing the normal things kids do, and then something would upset her. And that's when the change would start, and she could become quite aggressive. Mary Bell brought what she had learned at home with her to school and was feared by her classmates on the playground. She had such a heavy, dark fringe and her blue eyes, her piercing eyes, recalled another former classmate. They got fixed on you and you knew you were in for trouble. I was frightened of her. So what you did was you kept away from her but there were situations where she would come to you. You had to be very, very careful of her. You wouldn't turn your back on her. On one occasion, Mary put out a cigarette on a girl's cheek. On another, she choked a girl on the playground. She placed her hands around the girl's throat and squeezed, asking another child, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Mary's teachers noticed her behavioral problems, but nothing was done to address them. Mary would simply apologize and be sent home with a warning. But Mary did have one friend, a girl called Norma, who lived next door. Norma was two years older than Mary, but seems to have suffered from an undiagnosed mental disability 
she was intellectually immature for her age and easily manipulated by Mary. Mary was far brighter than Norma, and Norma did whatever Mary told her to do. People in Scotswood believed that if Mary told Norma to jump off a bridge, Norma would jump off a bridge. On Saturday, May 11, 1968, Mary and Norma picked up a three-year-old boy and took him to buy some sweets. Later that day, the boy was found wandering behind some empty sheds near a pub, dazed and bleeding from the head. Mary and Norma claimed that he had fallen off an old air raid shelter while they were playing. Police and ambulance were called, but again, no action was taken against Mary and Norma. The next day, on Sunday, May 12th, police were called by a mother claiming that Mary had choked her daughter Pauline while playing in a sand pit. And Norma had watched as Mary shoved sand down the little girl's throat. But again, despite numerous incidents, nothing was done about Mary Bell. Two weeks later, on the afternoon of May 25th, four-year-old Martin Brown's lifeless body was discovered lying on the floor of a boarded-up derelict house in Rat Alley. He was green and he felt cold, recalled Martin Brown's mother, June. And this man with tears running down his face, I said, is he all right? And he says, I don't know, I don't know. And at that, two ambulance men rushed past us and grabbed him. When Martin Brown was pronounced dead at the hospital, his mother was in shock. He didn't look as if he were dead. There wasn't a mark on him. There was a little trickle of blood going down on his face, but that was it. First, investigators noticed that there were some aspirin tablets laying on the floor next to Martin's body, which appeared to have been left by a former tenant. But when Martin's body was examined, doctors found no signs of a drug overdose. With no obvious signs of violence, police believed that the child's death was just a tragic accident caused by the conditions in the Rat Alley slums. The following Monday, police were called when teachers at a nearby nursery discovered that there had been a break-in over the weekend. The school had been vandalized, but nothing had been stolen. Among the debris, officers found four notes with childlike scrawls confessing to the murder of Martin Brown. One note read, We did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. Another read, I murder so that I may come back. Police dismissed the notes as a sick and cruel prank, and the school installed an alarm system. 
That same Monday, Mary wrote in her school notebook of learning of Martin Brown's death. At the bottom of the page, she drew a picture of a workman finding Martin's body with a bottle of tablets laying next to him. Her teacher failed to notice. Just before Martin was buried, Mary and Norma decided to pay a visit to Martin's mother's house, and Mary asked if she could see Martin. When June explained to the little girls that they couldn't see Martin because he was dead, Mary smiled and replied, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. June slammed the door in their faces. Two months later, on Wednesday, July 31st, three-year-old Brian Howe had been missing all day. Like so many children, he had gone unsupervised to watch the houses being demolished in Rat Alley. Mary and Norma picked him up and took him to play on a patch of ground known as the Tin Lizzie. By evening, Brian's older sister Pat was frantic with worry, looking for her little brother all over the neighborhood. Mary Bell and Norma appeared during the search and offered to help Pat look for her little brother. Mary gradually led Pat to a large stack of concrete blocks on the Tin Lizzie, suggesting that Brian might be playing behind the blocks or between them and trying to get Pat to go over and look. Pat refused and left. Later that night, police found the body of Brian Howe on the Tin Lizzie in the exact location that Mary had pointed out to his sister. The boy had been strangled. His blonde curly hair had been chopped. There were puncture wounds on his thighs. A letter M had been crudely carved into his stomach and his genitals had been mutilated. Near the body, police found a broken pair of scissors. Police now finally suspected that the deaths of Martin Brown and Brian Howe may be connected and that the murderer may be a child due to the gentleness of the strangulation. All of the neighborhood children were questioned. One child stood out. Whenever I held or whenever anyone else held a conference, this one girl's face kept appearing, listening intently to everything being said, recalled one investigator. One couldn't miss her. It was Mary Bell. The children of Scottswood were already suspicious of Mary and Norma. Mary had been heard bragging on the playground that she had strangled a boy. Just a few days after the break-in in the nursery school, Mary had attacked Norma 
on the playground, scratching and kicking her, yelling, I am the murderer. That house over there, that's where I killed. At the funeral of Brian Howe, an officer stationed outside the house reported seeing Mary in the street as the coffin came out. She stood there laughing, he said, laughing and rubbing her hands. Police wanted to question Mary again, but her father refused to let them take her, threatening to set their dog upon them. But when a nine-year-old boy came forward and told police that he had witnessed Mary strangle Brian, investigators finally had what they needed. The boy said that little Brian had been complaining of a sore throat, and Mary told him that she could make the pain go away by massaging his neck. She then squeezed tighter and tighter until the boy died. Police brought Mary and Norma back in for questioning. Mary claimed that she saw an eight-year-old boy with Brian on the day he was murdered. Mary had apparently seen the boy playing with a pair of scissors. But when Mary mentioned the scissors, detectives knew that she must have been present for the murders as the scissors were confidential evidence and had not been released to the public. Mary changed her story. She then told police that it had been Norma who killed the boys. Norma pointed the finger back at Mary. According to Norma, Mary ignored her pleas to stop hurting Brian. So Norma left, and the next time she saw Mary was on her own with Brian's dog. Mary then told Norma that she had killed Brian and brought Norma to look at the body. Mary told police that Norma was lying to get her into trouble. Detectives were almost impressed by Mary's handling of her interrogation. When she was being questioned by a detective chief inspector about the charge of murder, the 11-year-old said, I'll phone for some solicitors. They will get me out. This is being brainwashed. She also requested to make a signed written statement in which she wrote a lengthy account naming Norma as the murderer. But the evidence against Mary Bell was stacking up. When Mary's teacher went through her notebooks to see if she had written anything about the murders and to provide a handwriting sample to police, the drawing of first victim Martin Brown being found by a construction worker stood out. When police saw Mary's drawing, and the bottle of tablets drawn next to the boy. They knew they had their murderer. Like the scissors, the tablets found next to Martin's body had not been disclosed to the public, 
Additionally, Mary's handwriting was matched to the notes found in the nursery school. On August 8, 1968, police charged Mary Bell and Norma with murder. Four months later, on December 5, 1968, their trial began. Mary Bell continued to try to pin the blame on Norma, but Mary's long history of violence toward other children suggested otherwise. Court-appointed psychiatrist David Westbury told the court that Mary displayed classic symptoms of psychopathy and needed treatment. The prosecutor argued that, quote, In Norma, you have a simple, backward girl of subnormal intelligence. In Mary, you have a most abnormal child aggressive, vicious, cruel, incapable of remorse, a girl moreover possessed of a dominating personality with a somewhat unusual intelligence and a degree of cunning that is almost terrifying. On December 17, 1968, the verdicts were rendered. Norma was acquitted of all charges against her. Mary Bell was convicted of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility because of the psychological diagnosis in the trial and was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, in other words, indefinitely. She was sent to a boarding school where she was to be rehabilitated. Nine years later, in 1977, Mary Bell was transferred into an adult prison. In 1980, at age 23, Mary Bell was released. She was given a new identity and in 1984 gave birth to a daughter. The girl knew nothing of her mother's past until 1998 when reporters tracked down Mary Bell and the two fled their home, hiding under bedsheets. When her daughter reached age 18 in May of 2002, their right to anonymity was expected to be lifted. However, on May 21, 2003, the High Court granted them both lifelong anonymity under the Human Rights Act. In 2009, Mary Bell became a grandmother and lifelong anonymity was extended to the grandchild as well. Today, any court order permanently protecting the identity of a convict in Britain is known as a Mary Bell order. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.